Good morning. Um, today we're going to look at a passage that expresses invitation, if nothing else, uh, calling. How many of you? Um, how many of you have been invited to something before? Amen. It feels good to be invited, doesn't it? Um, this passage really invites us to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do as Jesus did. In fact, that's the title for today's message, and it is each of our three points. Um, Jesus, when he called his disciples, he said, come and follow me. Those words were contextual, not just to Jesus, but to discipleship of the day. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at when he called Levi, the tax collector, to be a disciple of his. Levi, who'd become Matthew and write the first of the four synoptic gospels. He calls Levi and he says, come and follow me. The problem is, when he called a tax collector, he did something very non-contextual to the day. He called the worst of the worst of the worst. And in their day, Judaic discipleship was reserved for the very best of the best of the best. And so, so when Jesus makes a decision to call the Hebraic uh, Judaic educated system, uh, he calls the, those that were dropouts that hadn't been educated past the age of 10. And he calls people like fishermen or he calls the, the known thief in Judea and Judas or, or he calls the tax collector in Levi. He's doing something incredibly offensive. His invitation is actually unheard of. It is something that to the rest of society and the rest of the, the process or the, the system of discipleship was offensive. However, to these men, do you think it would have been offensive? How many of you said you like to receive invitations? No one likes to know a party's going on, but you didn't get one, right? All right. So this for them was a second chance for these men. And how many of you know God is the God of a million chances and you're grateful for that? He was the God of a million chances. This is a second chance for these men to succeed. And as much as we look at the cross and we go, God, we know you're a God of a million chances because of the work you did in Jesus. Even Jesus' invitation to these men to come and follow after him was redeeming in nature. And it is the same invitation extended to you and to I. But to understand what they were really being asked to do, the closest description we have today in the English language is the word apprentice. An apprenticing process looks a little bit like this. It is um, four stages, uh, if I were to break it down simply. It's I, I work and you watch. Eventually that will become uh, I work and you help. And eventually we'll move to the point where you work, I help. And then we'll move to the point where you work and I watch. You see, all Judaic discipleship followed a pattern that took the rabbi who had been observing students, who had been observing young boys around the age of 14 who had survived something. Now, what I mean by the disciples that Jesus chose washed out at 10 years old. See, all Hebrew children, boys and girls, went to school when they were young and they would finish uh, the first level of Judaic education called Beit Sefer at 10 years old. And at 10 years old, they had to have the first five books of the Bible memorized, word for word. All 10-year-olds would graduate and have to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, and they had to be able to recite it word for word. That was every child in their system. 
But most couldn't make it beyond that. Most, uh, all women would be released at this point. They would go and try to take on the honor that was highest in their day, and that was to become a mother. And if they themselves couldn't become a mother, they would help bring children into the world and become a midwife. So happy Mother's Day. It was very important to them too. But boys at this point who would wash out like the men that Jesus would call his disciple, they would go and simply they would apprentice and they would begin to study what daddy did and they would take on his job. So like for Simon Peter, he would become a fisherman, washed out of Hebraic school at 10, but he had gone as far as he could possibly go. But the best of the best at that Bates Affair level would be invited to go on to study even further. And they'd be invited to study at a level called Beit Talmud. And Beit Talmud required further study. It was the, not just the Torah or the law, it also required the study and the memorization of the poetic books, the historical books, all the major and minor prophets from Genesis 1 to Malachi, the last verse memorized by 14. By 14, the entire Old Testament had to be committed to memory, word for word, in order for someone to finish Beit Talmud. Only the very best of the best were invited to be a part of this process. And during, during their study, during that second level Beit Talmud, they'd be observed by rabbis who would watch them and they could see their intellectual prowess. And they would look at them and say, this one might be able to do it. To do what? my job. And so they would look at them and they would eventually inquire of a student and look at him and say, would you? And when they would say, would you, that was almost an invitation. It was an invitation for you to apply to be my disciple. And as they would go through the process of applying to be a disciple of this rabbi, they needed to understand that this certain rabbi had a specific yoke. And that yoke was his specific interpretation of Scripture and the law and his own individual teachings. If you remember, as we started this series in Mark, we talked about how Jesus taught with an authority that was different than any other rabbi because rabbis would travel from place to place, town to town, synagogue to synagogue, and they'd be invited to teach. And they were to teach their yoke. And they would say, some rabbis believe this, some rabbis believe this, and they left it to the people to work it out. So when Jesus said, no, this is the truth, drop the mic, completely different. But this rabbi would go, do you know my teachings? And so they would sit that boy down at 14 and put them through hour upon hour upon hour of grueling interview. Now, they have memorized the entire Old Testament word for word, and they're going to be just just a gruelly uh, giving a dissertation on said memory. They have to be able to tell this rabbi everything they know about the law, everything they know about its interpretation, everything they know about his specific interpretation. He wants to know if they know what he knows. He wants to know if they can do his job. He's looking for replacements. And so... It is at this point, after two sections, Beit Sefer and Beit Talmud, after the entire Old Testament is memorized word for word, after a grueling hour upon hour interview just to see if this boy actually can handle what it's going to take to be my disciple, he might then extend the invitation. And the invitation every time always looked like this. Okay, come and follow me. 
just like Jesus said to his disciples. And at that point, that boy would leave everything that he knew. Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you otherwise hate your father, mother, brother, sister, yes, even your wife, even your own life. And we look at it and we go, that's a really hard teaching. But see, they understood that's what was required in discipleship. When he said, come and follow me, that was a deep, deep honor. It was the highest and most respectable thing that could be offered to a 14-year-old Jewish boy. And so he would leave his family. He would leave his friends. He would leave the potential uh, job that he would inherit, the family business. And he was going to go move in with his rabbi and live amongst his rabbi for years. There was a process of secession and implementation put into place so where he would look at the rabbi, watch the rabbi begin to mimic and do just as his rabbi did. He would sit in the synagogue taking notes as his rabbi taught. And then along the class, along the road, which became the classroom, he would ask questions and dialogue and receive answers. And, and the rabbi would ask questions to see if he was getting it. Much like Jesus would look at his disciples as they're walking from town to town. Good, they would say, when you said this parable, what did you mean? And he would say, well, it means this. Understand? So the road became the classroom. There was an ancient blessing by all Jews. It went like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What that meant was, may you be so highly favored that you become the favorite, that you're the one closest to your rabbi, that as he walks, he kicks his dust up onto you because you will be the one selected to take his job. You'll be the one. May you be amongst all he chooses, the one that raises to that kind of favor. And so this was an honor reserved for the very best of the best of the best. And it was a dream for the boys in Judaic society who were the best of that day. This method continues today in discipleship. It is I work, you watch. I work, you help. You work, I'll help. And then you work and I will watch. This is actually not unlike the daily invitation of most Mothers, or the motherly, if you will. As Lynn was saying in, earlier, this is uh, a day where we honor those who have a heart that is motherly, the heart to train up a child in the way that they would go when they're older, they will not depart from, as Proverbs 22 6 says. This is the desire. Even if someone doesn't have the ability to raise or bear their own children, this is the desire to take someone, even how many of you are an adult and have someone mothering you in your life right now. Okay, a couple of us, okay? I am grateful for the motherly in my adult life because here's the thing, I don't know our everything, okay? And if I only hang out with people as dumb as I am, I'm not gonna get anywhere, okay? I need to talk with people who have been there, so to speak, Okay, so the motherly walk alongside and they share things with us. Mothering is nothing if it isn't an invitation to be trained. Rearing children follows the same kind of process as the Judaic apprenticing process. And you may have experienced this from your own mom. Maybe it was from someone else who was just motherly in your life. You know, it does take a village. I know that I did. In fact... To prove it, I'm going to bring up two people who are the apple of my wife's eye. I'm going to bring up my sons. I've not done this before, but you guys come on up here. I'm going to use yellow. Coming up. Uh, this is Gabe, my oldest, and this is Cannon, my youngest son, my middle child, and they are the apple 
of their mother's eye. And so, so uh, guys, welcome. <laughs> They're excited to be here. We haven't set this up whatsoever. Okay. I'm going to ask you guys a question, and I need you to help me out, okay? Now, um, when I say, Gabe, I'm going to make my signature dish in the kitchen, okay? What is that signature dish? What am I going to make? Your meatballs. Yes, I'm going to make meatballs. That's right, okay? I'm going to make meatballs. A French kid who really is a mutt from America makes meatballs, okay? All right? Okay, I'm, I'm saying that for, for prowess. Now, Canon, if... I'm about to make meatballs. How does that make you feel? Excited. Okay. You get excited. Why? Let me ask you a question, Canon, and this is a really deep theological question. Have you ever had a meatball in your life that compares to your father's or is better than his? No. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We, because of this truth, can close in prayer. A father? That's good. Thank you guys. Y'all give it up for them and for their mother who brought them into the world. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to let you boys in on a secret, and that is this, that while your dad's meatballs may be the greatest meatballs on the planet, your dad's meatballs aren't his meatballs. Truth be told, I learned how to make meatballs from a Sicilian woman who lived up the street from me years ago when I was just Gabe's age. In fact, I was good friends with her son, and I would go over, and Teddy and I would hang out, and we'd play, and I would walk over to his house on a Wednesday, and, and I would see Mystery Alley in the kitchen starting to make something that looked to be what I thought it might be, and that's meatballs. And so, But here's the thing. She started working on the meatballs Wednesday because we were going to have them Friday night. So I knew one question was only appropriate. I would look at her and say, Mr. Alley, can I sleep over Friday night? <laughs> and she said, Justin, why? I said, I perceive that you're making meatballs. She said, I am. I perceive those are going to be served on Friday night. She goes, they are. And she goes, and since this is about the 12th time you've invited yourself to spend the night on Friday night because I'm making meatballs, I need you to go wash your hands, come in here, and roll up your sleeves. And she took me through the process of how she makes meatballs. And now they've become my meatballs, and obviously my children now benefit Maybe one day they will learn how dad makes his meatballs because I work, you watch. I work, you help. You work, I help. You work, I watch. And in the life of a rabbi who's stepping away from his disciple, it will be from a distance because that, new, that student will now become a new rabbi and take his job. This, I said, is all about invitation. We must be invited. Mystery Alley invited me to learn how to make meatballs. Jesus invited his disciples to follow. And he said in Revelation 3.20, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We will sup together. It is a relationship that he invites us into. And our passage for the day is found in Mark 3.13-19. through 19. It's six verses that revolutionary that are revolutionary in the life of any disciple. And we're going to really focus on two verses. Here they are. Jesus went up to the mountain and he summoned those he wanted. I want to say that again. He summoned those that he wanted. 
And they came to him. He appointed the twelve whom also he named the apostles to be with him and sent them out to preach, have authority and to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve to Simon he gave the name Peter, to James the son of Zebedee he, and his brother John he gave the name Borgenaires or sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Phaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who would also betray him. I want to focus on verses 14 and 15. Jesus invited these men to come, and he appointed the twelve from amongst the many, and he said, I want you to be with me. I'm going to send you out to preach. And I'm going to give you authority over the darkness. First point is this. We're invited to be with Jesus. Jesus invites his 12 to come to be with him. He draws them out from amongst the many. See, this is important. We talk all the time about a relationship that we have to Jesus, but we need to recognize that we have been intimately welcomed to spend time with him. These men were welcomed in. And we hear of the three that led the 12. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. Even those three had even more intimate time to listen and ask questions and be present with Jesus. We too have to accept this invitation, but it is a desire of the heart. Our heart has to desire to do it. Every disciple that accepted the invitation of a rabbi understood that what they were entering was a student-to-teacher relationship. They didn't come in feeling that they knew everything. They were coming in intentionally to learn. These men, specifically who Jesus calls aside, they understand themselves that they're the least likely, the least qualified, and they see their opportunity to be a disciple solely as a second chance. It's redeeming. Uh, John Mark Homer from his book, Garden City, reads it like this. I love this quote. It says, it's not failure if you fail at doing something you're not supposed to do. It's success. When you're the least of these and you're, you're not the very best of the best of the best, you know that you don't deserve to be at that party. You see, because with each success and with each so-called failure, you're getting a clearer sense of your own personal calling. These men had been pulled aside understanding that they had to change. They had to learn. They had to be teachable. And the word says that this life is but a vapor. This life is vapor-like. We don't have a lot of time to be teachable. Here's what I... I, I was reading a, a book by Francis Chan, and he challenged me in this, this way, in this thought that he put, provoked. I'm going to do my best to put it before you in simple terms, but it's been sitting heavy on my heart. And Heather and I were talking about it earlier this week. It's heavy on the chest. You know what I'm saying? He said this, Are your first 750,000 years of eternity being informed by the 75 plus years you've been given here? What he's saying is if you're going to spend, all those who just had their children dedicated, if you're going to spend the next 40 to 50 to 60 years spending time investing so that they have something and they're taking care of for when after you're gone, here's the question that we all have to be able to answer if we're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant from Jesus. He entrusted those children. He entrusted that wife to you. What have you done to prepare them for their first 750,000 years of Jesus and in his presence in eternity? Or are we caught in the weeds and all the drama of the here and now and the day-to-day and the things that are immediately in front of us? 
Because how many of you know this world's crazy? And how many know the people in it crazier? This place is jacked up and it was broken and never intended to be like this. But are we allowing ourselves to be robbed of the opportunity to prepare those in our lives around us for the first 750,000 years of eternity with Jesus? Are we focused on... And is the heartbeat of preparing those who God has entrusted to me to be with Jesus being informing this? Because it will be gone, the word says, in a moment. Have they seen us model the accepting of Jesus' invitation to come and sit with him for extended times of silence and listening and in prayer? Have they noticed in our lives a sensitivity to God's Holy Spirit, to his leading? Have they seen within us a teachability that welcomes Jesus to come and search and know my heart and make me aware of any unclean way that is within me and I will dispel of it? Have they recognized a a willingness within me to go, I don't have it all together. I humbly admit that I have I've messed up. I've missed it. God, come and search me. Is there something in my life that I don't, I'm not even aware of because I've, I've trained my life to trust me and rather than trusting you, is there something that needs to be confessed? Are you witnessing and modeling for those that you're preparing for eternity to be with Jesus, sitting before the scriptures, dialoguing with the scriptures, allowing those scriptures to pierce your heart and to make it pliable. Are we prepared to be with Jesus? Not to meet him, not to show up once a week, slap him five, but to be with Jesus in the very presence of Jesus for all eternity. That's what we know heaven to be. That's what we're certain of. Are we prepared and are we preparing those that God has entrusted to us to be with him. When you think about what Jesus said and what John the Baptist said, I have to decrease so that he might increase within me. The people in your life will only see Jesus if they recognize you're accepting the invitation to be with him and allow in that invitation to become like him. That we begin to allow the things that are in our lives to fall apart. Craig Rochelle said it like this, that we pray for who we are to become, not the list that we are to do, not simply what we are to do. He says, if we're going to make a list, pray for your who, not your to do. Who you are becoming, not what you need to accomplish. These men who were selected were not perfect. They were far from it. Religious leaders took great issue with the selections of Jesus' disciples, and they, they should have, because these men didn't fit the bill of a mathetes or a disciple. They were the worst of the worst. These were not the best of the best of the best. In fact, can you imagine this picture? Like, let's have Jesus' disciples sit on the front row and their disciples sit on the other side of them on the front row and they look across the aisle and they go, we blew these guys out of the water back in Bates Safair. 
These guys washed out at 10. We got selected to go on. Do you understand what's going on here? You hear? Even those men who got selected to go on, who had talent, who had the ability to place a lot of trust in their own God-given abilities, their own intellectual prowess, still entered a relationship with their rabbi to be taught. And the question this morning is, are we teachable? You see, now, the one thing that those men... The disciples of the rabbis did not know is that these men who were selected by Jesus had been deserved for a really, really, really long time. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and behold, everything that we see was made by the hand of the Word. Genesis 1 says that we were created in His image before the foundation of the world. And so, while many disciples were scrutinized from afar, objectively, before they were approached by their rabbi, Jesus, even more so, had been observing, dreaming, placing within each of the men that he called, these washouts, these dropouts, the unqualified. He knew precisely what he put within them, and he knew precisely when he needed to draw it out. We went through our series, Callings. He knew exactly what he desired from them. He knew exactly how they fit and made his team complete. He knew exactly why he could entrust these men to go and preach like him. He knew exactly why these men could be left once he was gone, the, the responsibility of starting the entire New Testament church and of which we still benefit in it today. These men were intentionally selected by Jesus to reveal the heart and the kingdom of God for what it actually was. See, the, the other men, the rabbis, they were so, selecting disciples so that they could reveal their own yoke so they could reveal like their interpretation of the law, so they could continue a posture that moved forward in religion. But Jesus selects these men so that it's not the posture that is taught, that actually buried God's actual intent beneath years of pompous and proud misinterpretation and practice. He picked these men to draw them out, to select them so they might be able to reveal and share what God actually desired. And it had to be a different picture. It had to be the least of these. It had to be the least qualified. Why? Because just like in the story of Gideon, it had to be the person that was least expected. Because when they walked out and they began to say the message of Jesus, just like Jesus said the message of the Lord, repent for the time is near. The kingdom is come. The Messiah is present. These men, these men trusted Jesus implicitly. They trusted the message of Jesus totally. Why? Because these men, were on their redemptive journey, their second chance. These men knew that their gifts and talents led them to washing out of Hebraic school at the age of 10. But Jesus, Jesus told them, I put something else in you. And they trusted the words that Jesus was Messiah. He had shown that. Peter revealed that, called that out in Matthew 16. I place my total trust in you. I have nothing to offer the world. I have nothing to offer it. I was good enough to wash out at 10. My righteousness is filthy rags. These men not only 
believed that they could offer nothing, but that Jesus was the only answer and he offered everything. And because of this trust, they could preach like he did with full authority and things began to happen. It says that they began to drive out demons. They pushed back the darkness just like he did. That they cast out demons just like he did. See, this message had to be accompanied by the miraculous. Because what did we learn last week when we watched Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious elite, who Jesus to them makes no sense but heresy. When he, they come to him and say, we will never accept your message as Messiah. We'll never accept it. But your power over the miraculous, your ability to cast out demons, that's undeniable. We can't even argue that. So you must, you must have supernatural power and the only power could be from God or Satan. That's it. That's the only way that you have this source of power. And since we're of God, that means you're of the opposite. Hello? And so they go, we won't accept your message in our pride and arrogance, but we cannot deny the power that comes with it that's evident in your miraculous. And now that it's been extended to your disciples as well, their, their miraculous move and their authority over the darkness because of your same message is changing the world. Now, I want to be clear though. They're invited to push back the darkness. Last week we looked at how uh, Jesus said in uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 21, it says that, that, that no strong man, no strong man can, um, can have his house robbed of him unless he is first bound by one who is stronger than him. Then the stronger can take what he desires and clean his house. Okay, the strong man is Satan. Okay, the strong man is Satan. And only he who has authority over Satan can come in and bind Satan and take from his house is what that passage is saying. So what we're talking about here with these men who have an ability to cast out demons, there's not a transference of power. Can I be clear? Like we can't misuse what he's talking about here. There was only, demons were only subject to Jesus' name. Hello? Not our name. There's power extended to these men, but it's not a power transfer. Hello? There's an authority given to these men because of their trust in Jesus, but it's in Jesus' name the darkness is pushed back, and they're simply joining him. It's not that they start to push back the darkness all on their own. These were Hebrew washouts. Hello? These are tax collectors. These are sinners. They, they were just walking because the, the strong man could be bound by Jesus alone. And there was no authority transferred unto them apart from his name. I say that because there's a lot of bad theology that's making its way in circle. And I think that we have in our desire, because how many of you know humans like power, want power? We have a tendency to believe that that power has been transferred to us and that's how the devil makes magicians Hello? So, I want to I read what he expects of his church today. What he expects of us. I read this from Oswald Chambers, and it's from, uh, it's really quick, a passage from 2 Peter 1.5. It says, add to your brotherly kindness love. 
Jesus, when he left the world, he looked at John and said, write this down. He said, I give you a new commandment that you love everyone around you like I loved you. This commandment is what will be. He said of his church that they'll know us by our what? Say it louder, it's an L word. And he said that by your love for one another, I'll reveal myself to the world that I am Messiah. It says love is an indefinite thing most of, to most of us. We don't know what we mean when we talk about love. Love is the loftiest preference for another person. And spiritually, Jesus demands this sovereign preference be for himself. Initially, when the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, it is easy to put Jesus first. But when we must practice the things mentioned in 2 Peter 1, we see them worked out in our lives amongst other people. The first thing God does is forcibly remove any insincerity, any pride, and any vanity within us from our lives. And the Holy Spirit reveals to me that God loved me not because I was lovable, but because it was his nature to do so. Now he commands me to show that same love to others by saying, love one another as I have loved you. He is saying, I'm going to bring a number of people into your life whom you cannot respect, but you must exhibit my love to them just as I have exhibited to you. This kind of love is not a patronizing love for the unlovable. It is his love. It will not be evidenced in us overnight. Some of us may have tried to force it, but we were soon tired and frustrated. The Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish. I should look within and remember how wonderfully he has dealt with me. The knowledge of God that he loved beyond all limits should compel me to go into the world and love others in the same way. Anyone say amen. I may get irritated because I have to live with an unusually difficult person. But just think how disagreeable I have been with God himself. Am I prepared to be identified so closely with the Lord Jesus that his life and his sweetness will be continually poured out through me because I cannot help but spend time with him? Neither natural love nor God's divine love will remain and grow in me unless it is nurtured. Love is spontaneous, but it has to be maintained through discipline. Today's, invita today's message is all about invitation. And even after these men had accepted the invitation, they had to change. They knew that. And even after they'd been sent out, in this little precursor of what life would be like once Jesus was gone, this little, it's kind of an example, like I'm, I'm gonna send you out, you're gonna do the work, but I'm gonna help. Even as they sent them out, they came right back to Jesus, the source of all their power. And their power that had been extended to them amazed everyone who witnessed. They were amazed at what they could do, all because they chose to accept the invitation of Jesus and follow him. These men were specific to church history. In fact, these men, the apostles, we give an entire era to them in history. But their process is no different than ours. We are called into an intimate relationship and ability intimately to be invited and to follow Jesus so that we might change. They are in close proximity to Jesus so that 
what is in them fleshly will die away and his life might exude from them. They become like Jesus taking on his message, taking on his method, living his love before people. And that's the call that he's asked for you and I to exemplify as we walk the world before we go meet and be with him. That's what he's asked us to do as we prepare those who are coming behind us. He's asked us to accept the invitation to be with Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never accepted that invitation to be with him, today might be the day of salvation. He's asked us to accept the invitation to become like Jesus as his church, to stop loving the way that you and I do, which is faulty, but to love like him. And lastly, today he has asked us to do as Jesus did, ministering with a love that is supernatural because we trust his message more than anything else. We push back the darkness in the lives of those around us because... He's the one that extended that ability to us. We recognize just how much we were loved and we cannot help but keep this commandment that Jesus established with John, that we love like him. So today there are three questions and three ways to respond. You can come and receive the time to be with Jesus as the band is coming back. Maybe you're here and you want to talk to a ministry partner, you want to talk to a minister, I'll be available. I'd love to pray with you about what it means to be with Jesus, to be taken out of this deceptive and crazy world and brought into a place of peace, of joy, and love. If you're here and you go, I know someone who needs that, so these crosses are available. And we, we, we literally come with a heart that is heavy and we pin the name of that person or the request that we need because we know that Jesus alone is the one who can answer said request. We pin it to that cross. Maybe today we come to his table and we re-enlist as disciples of Jesus who go, you know what? We didn't deserve to be here. We should have never been at this party. But Lord, we thank you so much that we are. We thank you so much that you loved us enough that you'd give yourself so that we wouldn't have to. You died so that we could live. You died so that we could have this invitation. And maybe we say, you know what? We come today just saying thank you. This morning, no matter how we respond, I think it should be with thank you, church. We'll receive the invitation today to be with Jesus, take that next step to become like Jesus, and leave this place to do as Jesus did. Father, we love you. We thank you. It is in Jesus' name we ask these things.